So we are continuing our journey through uh, the month of October uh, with the uh, going through some of the solas of Martin Luther as we commemorate uh, the Reformation and the kickoff of the Reformation that began 500 years ago uh, this uh, coming week. Well, I guess a week and two days. Uh, on October 31st when Martin Luther famously pinned his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church and um, kicked off what would become known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this week we start, we're going to uh, settle in on sola gratia, which means grace alone. So I thought it'd be apt to start by saying this. Um, I'm a failure. I am and never will be good enough. I am always going to be a sinner, imperfectly trying to achieve a more perfect way, and I am going to spend plenty of time flat on my face in the dirt, wondering how will I ever get up from this one? Because I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We are all uh, destined to be failures at perfection, at least this side of eternity. Paul, uh, the author of Ephesians, has a way of pointing this out, uh, pointing out our struggles, reminding us that uh, we are all, in fact, sinners. In our scripture today, he opens with, you were dead, as in no longer alive, not breathing, not existing in the world of the living. No more chances, no more hope, just dead. Basically, our default, uh, according to the scripture, is to be failures, to be sinners, and to be in that dead. For the wages of sin is death. So that sounds pretty depressing, right? <laughs> Isn't that what you came here for this evening? To have a good uh, depressing moment? No, anybody? Nobody? Well, don't worry. There's more. There's always more. Um, so this is the starting point, though, that we are all at. We're at this default mode. As much as I don't necessarily like to admit that I am a failure at my perfection, I want to think that I walk every day and do everything just perfectly, and I make everything good and happy, and God just is so happy with everything I do. Uh, this morning, the sermon I heard was to the glory of God alone. And, you know, I like to think that everything I do is to the glory of God alone, and yet... I know every single day I fall short of that. I know every day my own desires, my selfish ambitions, my ego, my whatever gets in the way. And I will sin in big and little ways. And so Paul is setting out this default for us as sinners. I mean, let's be honest, one of the most impossible uh, or greatest struggles of our faith is living up to this impossible standard of Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus. Jesus, who is God incarnate, in the flesh, walking on the earth, and we're supposed to be like him. I mean, Jesus was perfect, and we're called to be like him. I feel like I've already been set up for failure, right? 
feels a little bit that way. I mean, I'm, as much as I'm going to keep trying to perfect myself, I'm on the journey towards perfection, as John Wesley talks about it, it's this struggle because I know I am imperfect. And if I'm honest, sometimes I have a struggle. Sometimes we have a struggle with meshing this idea of our imperfect nature with Jesus' perfect love. It's one of those things that we've really been chewing on for about 2,000 years now, trying to figure out and understand since Jesus walked the earth as one of us. And, you know, sometimes it's led us into some pretty dark theological places, like assuming that all of us are absolutely no good and we can do nothing that is good. And some of the greatest thinkers of the church have even struggled with this. I want to talk to you a little bit about two of them this evening. One is uh, Martin Luther of Reformation fame. Um, Martin wrote this as an older man about his younger years when he found himself uh, struggling with the words of Paul and what to do with a God who despises sin and yet could receive a sinner. And so, uh, speaking of uh, the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans, he says, I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant, but thus far there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but the one word which is in chapter 1. The justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, justice of God, which by the use and custom of all of my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as, refer as referring to formal or active justice, as they call it. That justice by which God is just and by which God punishes sinners and the unjust. Martin was wrestling with this idea of how can God be just and yet forgive a sinner. How do those two things coexist? John Wesley also wrestled with this same concept. Early in his life, uh, he founded his earliest class meetings as a way of, a part of a quest for personal holiness after struggling with holy life in the midst of what he called an unholy world. And so when he looked out from Oxford and he said, uh, we are in the midst of an unholy world trying to live holy lives and it is a struggle. It is hard. There are so many temptations and so many ways to fall apart. And so he said, let's form these class meetings so that we might hold one another accountable for our sin for our spiritual growth. Um, now, part of the reason that we took on this name called Methodist is because not only did he want these uh, accountability groups, if you will, he wanted a method of how we could go about achieving this accountability. And so he set up uh, these classes with strict methods designed to help further this endeavor for personal holiness. It was about achieving personal holiness through brute willpower, if you will. If I can just pray enough, if I can t have enough people that are going to ask me about my sins, maybe, maybe I can reach perfection. 
John and Martin, if I can call them by their first names, uh, were both struggling with this idea that they are sinners who continue to sin despite the scriptural call to holiness and righteousness. They very much understood this first part of the scripture that says, you were dead in your sin. But they struggle with how to understand just how, how a just God could so easily forgive. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever struggled with how can God possibly forgive me for this? And you could fill in the blank. What have I done that's been so much against what God preaches to us, what God speaks to us? It's a natural struggle because we are sinners called to be holy, and yet we do things that are not. Now, both John and Martin would have theology-shifting moments that would help transform uh, this, and thankfully they were writers who wrote down much of what they said. So I have uh, two um, passages that each of them wrote. Uh, the first from Luther. So Luther, in describing how he had this transforming moment, says, I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Sounds very similar to a moment that John Wesley wrote about, which probably a number of folks have heard before, but it's always a story that, as a Methodist pastor, I love to share. Um, for Wesley, it came on a night when reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans, and he wrote in his journal, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. I should preface this. Um, so John Wesley had just come back from the colony of Georgia, where he had been uh, the appointed chaplain uh, for the establishment of the colony of Georgia. And he had gone there in great gusto and excitement, um, in part to convert the native folks, which is a whole other subject to talk about, but also to, uh, to bring faith to the colony. And he, um, more or less, was an utter failure at everything. Uh, there's all kinds of stories about what happened there. I'd love to share some of them, particularly about his, his uh, fiance and how that went badly and, and John didn't behave well. Um, John even strayed into some sin himself uh, in denying communion. Um, and, and so he's come back from that. And he's come back almost in disgrace, more or less, because everything he's done has been a failure at least in that endeavor. And so, on his way back, he, he was met with some Moravians on a boat and had a wonderful um, event during a storm. 
And that led to him going to this Aldersgate Street meeting. But when he says he reluctantly or unwillingly went to a society in, on Aldersgate Street, he means he really was not necessarily wanting to be there, but something called him to be there. And it says, At about a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, saved me from the law of sin and death. Both of these men, these great leaders of the church, prolific writers of so much, influencers of so many, were struggling with this idea of grace. The idea that they were not good enough and yet they still received it. They struggled with the idea of trying to live a righteous life and finding them failures in this endeavor because they never could be righteous enough. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I'm not Christian enough to do that. I'm not quite good enough to do that. I don't know that I have the faith to do that. It's an interesting thing because I know I've definitely felt like I'm not enough. There's not enough of me to go, to do. And the truth is, it's probably true. I am not enough. But grace says you don't have to be. Grace is this free gift of God that is for each and every one of us poured out on us, given to us with no conditions other than to receive it. A free gift of God through Jesus Christ. And all that is required is faith. That's what Martin Luther was writing about when he wrote, uh, when he was writing about being justified, not, uh, justice not by uh, one's own will, but by faith. It's by faith. It's by believing in God, by trusting in God. What Wesley called the assurance of faith of understanding that God loves me, that Jesus forgives me, that I get to have the Holy Spirit. It's not just that each of us as individuals, but all of us have been gifted this special gift. Grace is what makes it all possible. Grace, undeserved, unwarranted, We'll never be good enough for it. And yet it's freely given, always, if we'll receive it. I got this image in my head as I was wrestling with this text of uh, some of the images I'd seen of the, uh, the fires in California. And in particular, there was this one, they showed a before and after of this neighborhood and how this neighborhood had been a normal neighborhood, like lined with houses, house after house after house with yards and driveways and cars. And there were even people walking in the picture. And then they showed an after picture and it was just all blacked out. The streets were still there. You could still see somewhat of the shape of the neighborhood, 
but nothing was left. It was completely barren, literally a scorched earth. And I got to thinking about how that's kind of like how we are. That's kind of what the scripture is talking about today when we're dead and then there's new life in faith. Because what I thought about is how whenever there is a, a fire like this, especially in unpopulated areas, it's actually not a terrible thing for the ecosystem. In fact, it can even be part of the ecosystem's recreating of itself, bringing new life. And it won't happen right away, but eventually you'll look around and you'll see a sprig of green, maybe a blade of grass, a small sprig of a tree popping up from the earth. And that's a lot like grace. It starts in this maybe little thing. Maybe we barely understand it. Maybe we barely have received it. And from there, it starts to grow. Have you ever seen some of the images of five years later of, of after a forest fire of what uh, the new life looks like. It's teeming with life. And life has regrown where once there was destruction, once, where once there was nothing, there is new life. And that is grace. Grace grows in us and it deepens our faith and it deepens us and, and it makes us more and more alive as we journey towards perfection. Now, it's not that we never mess up. It's not that we never sin. But it's that sin is covered by grace. There is no sin too great. There is no uh, commandment too strong that we can't be forgiven for breaking. So where does that leave us, this grace thing? So we've been given this grace. What, is it, what do we do with it then besides be forgiven? Well, God fills us with grace. Each time we come uh, to have communion uh, in, well, anywhere, receive the sacraments. That is a receiving of God's grace. Uh, and what, it's what Paul calls, um, it's what, uh, ugh, let me restart that sentence. It leaves us with the ability to move past what Paul calls the passions of the flesh and towards the passions of God. Because, you know, one of the problems of being, feeling like a sinner, of feeling like I'm not good enough, is that can weigh on us. And suddenly we start questioning, well, what can I do? Well, I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. Because, well, I know me. They might, may not even know me, but I know me. They don't really want me. But when we receive that grace and forgiveness, we can set that aside. We can let it go. We can let go of the burden of our sin. Uh, we can move past the, the idea that the law is holding us down and move on to the law of grace, which says we are forgiven. And when we are freed, that means we can go out and share that grace with others. We can begin to live lives that are not the passions of our own flesh, but the passions of God. It frees us to go out and do things for the glory of God, which I'll say about more about next week. Uh, and it allows us to not just slip back into the old ways, but to continue to grow and to pursue a more righteous life. Because while we are forgiven, we're also encouraged and called to continue to grow towards perfection. 
to continue to get better. Uh, like I said before, you know, we're going to fall on the ground. Come talk to me anytime in my office. I'll tell you, it's not it, the Christian journey, even for someone who wears this white robe and has a degree from a seminary, it's not any easier to walk the road. We all fail and fall short, but we have this thing called grace. And so, I will continue to be a failure, but I will be a failure saved by grace and renewed in Christ, set free from the sin that would weigh me down, and set free to go out and do good, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Not because it'll earn me more grace, because I already have more than enough of that, but because my heart is leading me there to do nothing more than my very best, or at least the best that I can do in that moment. And so it is true for each and every one of you. Amen. Oh, uh, that's downstairs. I didn't grab it. Sorry. So now is the opportunity for you to consider how you are being called to respond to the grace that you've been talking about. And then the Methodist.